I'm going to read uh, Luke chapter 24. If you want to take one of the Red Pew Bibles, it should be around in the seat in front of you. We'll turn that up together, and I'll read it, and, and you can follow along to check that that's what it really, really says. Luke chapter 24, and we're going to read from verse 36 to 43. 36 to 43. So Luke chapter 24, 36 to 43. If you've got one of these Red Pew Bibles, it's page 1062, 1062, 1062. So this is what the Bible says in Luke chapter 24, verse 36. Okay, the disciples are in mind here. And then verse 36, while they were still talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet it is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. Amen. If you have a Bible with you, please do turn to the passage that was read in Luke chapter 24. <clears throat> Our question this evening, can I have a future worth getting excited about? We find ourselves thinking about the future from time to time, don't we? We all have hopes and dreams. By the same token, we all have fears and anxieties. If you're a little later on in years here this evening, then perhaps on the one hand you are a little bit fearful of the future. And yet if you're a Christian, you're also hopefully comforted by the hope of heaven. For the younger generations here this evening, the future can be scary, but also exciting. There are career opportunities, perhaps university life, new relationships, new places to see and live, they all bring with them both a sense of adventure and some trepidation. When you're young and you think about the future, you don't always have a very eternal mindset. You mostly think about life this side of the new creation. If you're somewhere in the middle, you neither class yourself as young nor old, and I'm not going to draw any boundaries as to where that falls. Thinking about the future can be a strange thing, you maybe find yourself thinking from time to time, how are you going to keep paying for it all? Maybe you feel increasingly paralyzed as to how best to bring up your kids in an ever-changing world. Perhaps your relationship with your teenage or adult children is more difficult than what you would have hoped for. You perhaps even have the deep gnawing feeling that the best of life has passed you by. Maybe that it's all downhill from here all on in, at least until you're 65 or 67, it is now. And then maybe you'll have a few years of free time before it all comes to an end. I wonder this evening, how is it that you would fill in the blank in the sentence that's going to come up on the screen? 
the future is what? A crowd this size and varied, I'm sure we would almost have as many answers as we do people. Perhaps some of the common responses would be uncertain, scary, unknown. Or maybe the future is in God's hands or the future is what you make it. The truth is that thinking about the future can be a little bit depressing sometimes. We live in a precarious and fragile world. It often feels like no one really knows what's going to happen next. Everyone is groping for the wall and so it often feels as though the future is very much up in the air. And it's against that backdrop that I want to suggest that if you are a Christian, then your future is incredibly bright. That you do have a future worth getting excited about. In particular, the next slide will will sort of sum up what I want us to see tonight, that if you have Jesus, then your future is your own resurrection like his. If you have Jesus, then your future is your own resurrection like his. One of the amazing truths of the gospel is that God holds out before us a future that only Jesus deserves. In the gospel, you do not have to deserve your future. Jesus has done all of the deserving for you. And so Jesus offers us a future that nothing in this world can destroy He offers us a future both that this world cannot give us, offer us, but also a future that this world cannot take away from us. And so when we think about the Christian life and when we think about what it's really all about, it's not just about coming to church at the weekend for a little psychological boost as we get ready for our stressful weeks. It's not a spiritual espresso. The Christian life is as big and glorious and rugged and durable and immortal as the resurrection of Jesus. And the resurrected Jesus that we see here in Luke chapter 24 gives us a glimpse into what our future and resurrected selves will be like, and as such gives us hope then for an exciting future. The context here, what's going on in Luke chapter 24, this is after the resurrection of Jesus. The 11 disciples are in Jerusalem. They're terrified. Their leader has been brutally and publicly executed. They're worried that they might be next. Some of them have seen the empty tomb at this point, but none of them have seen the risen Jesus, so they don't really know exactly what's going on. Jesus, meanwhile, has appeared to two of his wider group of followers on the Emmaus Road. They, in turn, then have told the 11 that Jesus really is risen from the dead. So I want you for a moment just to put yourself in the shoes of these 11 men. Just over a week or so earlier, they entered into Jerusalem as a group of 13. Jesus was still very much alive. Judas was still part of the group. They're all eating together, joking together, praying together, enjoying fellowship together. And a week or so later, you've witnessed the death of your master. You've also become aware of the death of your friend, Judas. It makes you wonder, doesn't it, how these guys would finish that sentence? The future is pretty bleak here, it seems. A few things strike me from these verses. Notice, first of all, the reality of the resurrection that Luke makes very clear for us. In verse 36, he clearly points out that it is the real Jesus standing there in their midst. They're not hallucinating. Luke says it is Jesus himself who stood among them. 
Remember the Luke, the one who records all of this for us? He's a doctor by trade. He's a careful historian. He has researched all of these things for us meticulously. He is not just making it all up. There's no sense here in the text that the disciples are imagining all of these things. Jesus really had been dead. He really is alive and standing before them. And so can I say, if you're not yet a Christian here this evening, then this is one of the key truths of Christianity that you have to come to terms with. The central claim of the New Testament is that the resurrection of Jesus is the foundation upon which Christianity stands or falls. Luke is absolutely clear about the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. Also then, notice that Jesus isn't mad at his disciples here. What's his greeting in verse 36? It's peace be with you. So here is the resurrected Christ. He's standing before them. He is not physically harmed, nor is he psychologically damaged at the emotional betrayal that he has experienced. He is at peace. He doesn't come to give the disciples an earful. He doesn't come to give them their comeuppance. He doesn't even come to give them feedback on how they're doing as his followers. He comes to bring them his peace. Maybe you believe this evening that Jesus would despise you or reject you or at the very least be disappointed in you and give you some areas for improvement. Let me tell you this evening that the real risen Jesus comes to you and he offers you his peace. He is not here to make you feel guilty about your past. He is not here to deal with you reluctantly. He is not here to tell you to sort yourself out. He is not here to scold you. He is here offering you his peace. And if we are in Christ, if we have accepted the peace that he offers to us, then we can have a future worth getting excited about. So the first thing I want us to notice this evening is his newness, I'm not even sure if that's a word, his newness is your, our future. The New Testament writers are at great pains to show us the magnitude and importance of the resurrection of Jesus. It is the crescendo, if you like, to which the gospels are building. It is the central focus of the ministry of the early church. The New Testament writers want us to think about and understand the significance of the resurrection because it is the hope of the Christian life. So you don't need me to tell you how hard life can be here, right? We all sin. We all get sinned against. We all live in a world that is ravaged by the effects of the fall. We feel the impact of that in many different ways on a daily basis. This life is hard. We suffer. We weaken. And then eventually we die. But is that it? Is this all we can experience by way of meaning and significance and happiness? Is this brief existence here on earth as good as it gets? Well, biblically speaking, the answer to that depends on whether or not you have Jesus. Because without Jesus, then the answer is yes. This is as good as it gets. But if we have Jesus, then the answer is no. In fact, the answer is that this life is as hard and as difficult and as painful 
as our existence will ever be. One of the things that the New Testament points out to us about Jesus is that he is the prototype of a new humanity. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, don't look it up, it talks about Jesus being the first fruits of a new creation. He is nothing less than a new Adam heading up a new human race that God is recreating out of our deadness and this new human race will live and work and play and rule in a new creation forever. So here in Luke chapter 24, we have the resurrected Jesus, immortal, sinless, full of glory, completely indestructible. And if we are in Christ and if he is the prototype of a new humanity, the first fruits of a new creation, then what is true of him will also one day be true of us. His newness is our future. So elsewhere in the Bible, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, it says, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. What an incredible thought, that we will see the risen Jesus, but not only will we see him, we will be like him. Now, it's not that we will be divine. We won't be like him in that sense. But we will become immortal, sinless, glorious, and indestructible. His newness is your future. So imagine, right? Imagine yourself. Imagine an immortal, sinless, glorious, indestructible you. If you're in Christ, then that is what God has in store for your future. He has not made you for mediocrity. We get pretty used to, to life being mediocre, don't we? I mean, part of us can't help that. We, we find ourselves in circumstances that are largely mediocre. Most of us are from Lurgan, right? I love Lurgan, but in the grand scheme of things, globally, it's pretty mediocre, right? It's not on too many bucket lists. Most of us live ordinary, mediocre lives. And actually, I think that's probably a good thing in the sovereignty of God. We should probably be thankful for it. But in the new creation, nothing about you will be mediocre. You will be magnificent because God has created you for eternal, resurrected magnificence. So think of some of the implications of this. Think about why this means we can be excited for the future. Imagine a future you where you are sinless, where the sin and selfishness is completely rinsed out of you. Imagine a future where you are never angry or short-tempered, a future you that is never rude or insensitive, a future you without any sexual lusts, a future you that is never greedy for more money and more stuff, a future you that is never lazy, a future you that never lies, a future you that is never paralyzed by guilt and shame. Or what about a future you without pain and suffering? Imagine a future you that would be indestructible, incapable of suffering. A future where you would have no pain going to bed at night or waking up in the morning. A future with no cancerous cells, not having to organize your whole life around hospital appointments, not having to count out the tablets one by one at mealtime. 
Imagine a world with no death, no unexpected phone calls in the middle of the night, no more long goodbyes, no more funerals, no more gravesides to stand at. Imagine a future you with no more mental health struggles, no more visits to the GP, no more counseling sessions, no more battles with depression, no more having to cover up up the scars on your arms, no more of the darkness of just being alone with your own thoughts. Imagine a future where your relationships are completely perfect. No tension when you walk into the office or into the staff room on a Monday morning. No sick to your stomach feeling when you know you're going to see a certain person. No more sleepless nights worrying about what you've said or what was left unsaid or what she said or whatever. No more arguments, no more fights, no more abuse, no more awkwardness, and perhaps best of all, no more loneliness. Imagine a future you that has no issues with your self-esteem, no worries about what other people think about you, a future with no identity complexes, a future where you are completely confident as a magnificent, new, perfected, resurrected human being. Young people and perhaps some older people, imagine a future where it's okay to break a Snapchat streak. Imagine a future where you're not constantly seeking affirmation and approval from likes and shares and comments. Whenever we begin to imagine that future, I hope we begin to get excited about it. The point that I want us to see is that because of Jesus' resurrection, we can have that future. We do have a future that is absolutely worth getting excited about. Perhaps you're here this evening and for, for one reason or another you are struggling. Like we like said, life is hard. There might be any number of reasons as to why you're feeling the brunt of that at the minute. Please, please, if you're here this evening, be encouraged by this picture in Luke chapter 24. Know that your troubles in this life are momentary and that because of Jesus, your future is incredibly bright. And if you're here this evening and you're struggling and you're not yet a Christian, then the risen Jesus says to you that this future can be your future. If you turn to him in repentance and faith, then you too can have a future that is worth getting excited about. That leads us on then to think a little bit more about what this future might actually be like. The second thing then I want us to see this evening is that the future is a new earth. Often when we think of heaven, we struggle to think or imagine exactly what it might look like. Perhaps we have images in our heads of being in a heavenly choir or being part of an enormous church service. Well, I want to say that while I think there will be some times of corporate worship in the new creation, that won't be the sum of our experience there. There will be a lot more to it than that picture we get from the Bible consistently is not actually us going up to a place in the sky for eternity, but of a new heaven and a new earth coming down from above. So Revelation 21 verses 1 and 2 tells us, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. That's a picture or metaphor. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. 
So the climax of God's redemptive work is him dwelling with his people and new humanity from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue in the new creation and new earth. That is the end to which the biblical story is headed. So Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it really helpfully. We can't really argue with Martin Lloyd-Jones. Everything will be glorified, even nature itself. And that seems to me to be the biblical teaching about the eternal state, that what we call heaven is life in this perfect world as God intended humanity to live it. This should be on the screen. When he put Adam in paradise at the beginning, Adam fell and all fell with him. But when and women are meant to live in the body and will live in a glorified body, in a glorified world, and God will be with them. It's an amazing thought. Even the vocabulary of the Bible points us to this truth, I think. When talking about God's plans for his world, the Bible uses words like redeem, restore, re or reconcile, recover, renew, regenerate, re-resurrect. The use of that prefix re suggests a return to an original condition that has been ruined or lost. These words emphasize that God sees us in the light of what he intended us to be. And in the gospel, he is seeking to restore us to that design. Similarly, they remind us that God sees the earth as he intended it to be and that he seeks to restore it to its original design also. An illustration that's helped me think through this comes from C.S. Lewis' book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you know the story, you'll know that much of it is set in winter under the rule of the evil white witch, And by the time of Aslan's resurrection and return, winter is gone. Spring and then summer are arriving. So there is a sense in the book in which Aslan returns to rescue the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve, the Pevensey children. But there's also a sense in which he returns to rescue and restore Narnia itself. He reverses the curse He brings about a new world for sons of Adam and daughters of Eve to rule in and enjoy. And the line in the the novel that sums it up best, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. So if we are in Christ, then the future we have to look forward to is not joining a big choir that's going to sing forever and ever and ever. That will be part of the new creation. But it's actually joining with one another and with God himself in a renewed and perfected earth. That leads us to think then about what we will actually do in that new creation. There's lots of debates about this. A fair degree of speculation, it has to be said. And we have to recognize that in the Bible, God hasn't revealed to us everything about life in the new creation, but he has revealed to us everything that we need in order that we might live godly and faithful lives as we strain towards that new creation. So one of the things we notice from Luke chapter 24 is that it seems that eating will be part of our experience in the new creation. In verse 41, Jesus asks the disciples for something to eat. They give him a piece of broiled fish, which he then takes and eats in their presence. Why does Luke record that? 
little detail, well, perhaps it's for us to understand again that this was the real physical Jesus standing before these men. They're not seeing a ghost like Obi-Wan Kenobi and the Empire Strikes, Strikes Back. This is the real physical resurrected Jesus. He eats right in front of their eyes. He does so again in John chapter 21 when he makes breakfast for them on the beach. Jesus eats in his new resurrected body. And when we combine this evidence along with all of the allusions in the book of Revelation to feasting, it seems logical to conclude that in our new resurrected bodies we will enjoy eating and drinking, feasting together with God's people. So much of what we enjoy in this life happens around food, doesn't it? We enjoy sharing meals with friends and families. Those times can be glimpses of the new creation. In fact, I think one of the best ways that we can anticipate the new creation is to have people into our homes where possible to serve one another in that way. Imagine a world where we will feast together perfectly, where the conversation and the laughter and the sense of fellowship will fill and thrill our hearts. Imagine a world where we will feast with Jesus himself, where he is at our table and we enjoy his company. And not only that, he enjoys our company. Imagine, imagine such a world. And of course, if the new creation, if in the new creation we'll have perfected and glorified bodies, then it makes sense to conclude that our relationship with food in the new creation will be perfected as well. So no more greed or gluttony, no more threat of obesity, no more struggles with eating disorders, no more allergies, none of the often sensitive difficulties that we can sometimes experience with food. A couple of other things that I want to mention just about what we we might do in the new creation. What about work? This is sometimes a more contentious issue. When most of us think about work, we don't describe it as heavenly. And when most of us think about heaven, we don't really think about work. And yet in the Bible, it's clear that work was part of God's design for humanity before the fall. We see that very clearly in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Biblically speaking, work is not just a means to an end. It's not just in order to pay the bills. It's part of what we have been created for. Now, of course, the reason that so many of us find work such a toil and such a challenge is because it has been affected by the fall. The curse of sin means that our work can be really difficult. It can keep us awake at night. It can leave us feeling down and depressed. It can leave us feeling a lack of purpose at times. It can take over our lives and leave us far too busy and unable to enjoy the gift of life that God has given us. Work, I think, is perhaps one of the major ways that we feel the effects of the curse of sin in this world. But in the new creation, one of the things we're told consistently in Revelation is that we will serve God. So Revelation 7 verse 15 is talking about those who have come out of the great tribulation. It says, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And then Revelation 22 verse 3 No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. Question is, how will we serve him? Some of the commentators, and I find myself agreeing with them, suggest that one of the ways we will serve God in the new creation is through work. 
But imagine work without all of the restraints of the curse of sin. Imagine work with a renewed mind and a resurrected body. Imagine work where those around you are full of energy and vision and enthusiasm. Imagine work where there is complete harmony and cohesion among the staff. Imagine work where we will never feel the frustration and fruitlessness that we sometimes feel in this life. Imagine work that will involve deep and lasting accomplishment that will be unhindered by sin and decay. A working life where you will have unlimited and perhaps even previously undiscovered resources. Work where you will never feel a lack of fulfillment or purpose. A world where you will never go to bed on Sunday night feeling the Sunday night blues. It almost, almost sounds too good to be true. But if God created us for work in the first place and he is redeeming and restoring his creation, then it seems to me to make sense that work will be a significant part of our existence in the new creation. But not as we know and experience it here. There's a a long quotation on the screen. Let me read it very quickly from the author Victor Hugo, writes Les Miserables. He's talking about work in the new creation. He says, I feel within me that future life. I am like a forest that has been raised. The new shoots are stronger and brighter. For half a century, I have been translating my thoughts into prose and verse, history, drama, philosophy, romance, tradition, satire, ode, song. All of these I have tried, but I feel I haven't given utterance to the thousandth part of what lies within me. When I go to the grave, I can say, as others have said, my day's work is done, but I cannot say my life is done. My work will recommence the next morning. The tomb is not a blind alley. It is a thoroughfare. It closes upon the twilight, but it opens upon the dawn. Do you ever feel, do you ever feel in this life that you've got more in you or that you wish as though you had more in you, that you haven't given utterance to even the thousandth part of what lies within you? In the new creation, there will be an eternity of exciting opportunities for you to serve God and work with him for his glory, unhindered by the curse of sin. Finally then, what will we do in the new creation? What will it be like? Let's talk a little bit about marriage and relationships in the new creation. This is one of those areas where we know there will be some discontinuity. Jesus makes it clear in Matthew 22 and verse 30 that there will be no marrying or giving in marriage in the new creation. The picture we get is that our earthly families will be transcended by the world the family of God and so our fam- the family of God will be present and so our families will expand massively of course we will enjoy renewed fellowship with believing parents and spouses and children and I know that for many of us here this evening that that's a deeply comforting thought and it should be but we must also resist too individualistic a conception of the new creation. It won't just be a case of us treasuring time with our own kin. Our whole notion of what family is will be completely reconfigured. There will be no clannishness in the new creation. We will have new relationships to form and enjoy new and deeper bonds with brothers and sisters from all over the world that right now we haven't met and don't even know exist. That really excites me. 
Of course, if there is no marriage in the new creation, then evidently there will be no sexual activity in the new creation. But that doesn't mean that the intimacy of our relationships will be lessened. Our intimacy with God and with one another will be something greater and better than anything we know and enjoy here on this earth, including sex. That's perhaps a particularly powerful challenge and corrective to our sex-obsessed culture in the West today. In this world, so much of our identity is tied up with sexuality. If you were to look at the values of the world, it seems impossible to believe that you can have a fully satisfied and complete future without sex. And yet the Bible is saying the complete opposite. It teaches us that in the new creation, we will be more alive than ever, more fully known than ever, experience the deepest levels of pleasure and intimacy because we will be with Jesus and will be part of his eternal bride, the church. I think at the very least, that is a significant challenge to the idolatry of sexuality in the Western world today. So those are some of the things that we have to be excited about in the new creation. Last thing, and this is just in a word. How do we get there? How do we have this future? Again, I think we've got to go back to the passage in Luke chapter 24 because I think Jesus gives us the answer to that question. I find it striking here as to what Jesus is eager to show the disciples. They're startled, they're frightened. In verse 38, Jesus says to them, why are you troubled? Why did doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. You know we need to see this evening that Jesus is not asking us to follow his example so that we can enjoy the new creation. He is not wanting us to prove to him that we are good followers before telling us that we have a future worth getting excited about. He shows us his scars. And in doing so, He is showing us that he has made a way for us to enjoy this future that we've been thinking about. He, in his body on the cross, bore the punishment that we deserve for our sins and betrayal. And those scars prove to us, they prove to us that he really does love us at our absolute worst. And so he invites you this evening to look at his hands and then with the empty hands of faith, to lay hold of him and to have him for yourself and with him the glorious and amazing and exciting future of the new creation. So what's the one minute answer when you get asked tomorrow what was church about? Can I have a future worth getting excited about? Yes, if you have Jesus, your future is incredibly bright and so you can be very excited. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we, we realize as we come to think about these things, in some ways we're only getting started, and yet our hearts do begin to race and pulsate and get excited about what life be, might be like in this wonderful new creation. We thank you so much for the gospel. We thank you that Jesus is resurrected, and we thank you that because of that, His newness is our future. 
Lord, we do pray for ourselves. We pray that we will be excited about the Christian life. That we will be excited about living it here. That we will be excited about what awaits us in the future. Lord, we we pray this evening that some of these things that we've been thinking about, that we hope to anticipate in the new creation, we pray, Lord, that we will be better at living in light of them here. That you'll be knitting us closer together here as a church family. That you'll be helping us to constantly point one another more and more to the Lord Jesus and the hope that we have in him. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.